Hi, my name is Robert McLaughlin. I'm the cinematographer on Lovecraft Country, and you're listening to The Go Creative Show. Hey, everyone. My name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions, and this is The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. So today we're talking with Robert McLaughlin, ASC, CSC. Uh, he's the cinematographer for Lovecraft Country on HBO, which is such an amazing show. And Robert does a great job talking to us about how he shot very particular scenes in the episode, his overall lighting philosophy, uh, of course, his lenses and his camera. There's a lot of information here, including a big discussion about shooting underwater and uh, how he was deeply inspired for one of the episodes for uh, deeply inspired by Raiders of the Lost Ark and Goonies. So there's a lot to unpack here, and you guys are going to absolutely love it. Of course, I want to encourage you to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We've got a lot of stuff going on with YouTube, including Go Creative Show Lives, which will be upcoming very, very soon. And of course, I want to thank our sponsors, Post Lab, Stress-Free Collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere, and MZ, education for creatives. All right, let's dive right in because there is so much to get to with Robert McLaughlin, ASC, CSC, the director of photography and cinematographer of Lovecraft Country. So I'm here with Robert McLaughlin, ASC, CSC, and the cinematographer of Lovecraft Country. Robert, thank you so much for joining the Go Creative Show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Now, the last time you were on, we were talking about your work on Game of Thrones and particularly the epic loot crate battle. And we have that episode available on gocreativeshow.com for you guys to check it out. We talked about a bunch of your work, too, in that one. But we're here today specifically to narrow in on Love, uh, Lovecraft Country, which is just an excellent show and probably one of the most surprising shows I think I've seen in a while. Surprising to me, meaning... You, it, it, it really blurs the line between science fiction and kind of this period piece and blends it in such a genius way. And I think you did an excellent job on that. So first, congratulations on such a great show. Well, I, I think the whole crew and, and especially the writers did a fabulous job and, uh, especially, and, and the art department we had. They gave us the best sets I've had since Game of Thrones, so photograph for sure. Yeah, money was spent on this show. <laughs> <laughs> money, money was definitely spent on this show, especially in the vis effects end of things. Um, they're just wrapping up the season finale. I think it's got something like 600 vis effect shots in it, which is which is rivaling Game of Thrones at its at its most vis effects heavy. So, um, yeah, it's they they they've really gone to town on it, and um, it's you know I'm 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 very proud of the work that we did on it. And, you know, I, I, I got the call about this. I was all set to go back and do season seven of Ray Donovan, which I'd been shooting for several years and was a very satisfying show to work with. And they'd made me a producer and, and a director on it as well. But oh, nice. Um, yeah. But I was you know, I was getting uh, normal, you know, as a cinematographer, you don't want to stick on the same thing for too long. You get it. It's just no matter how hard you try, it's easy to get complacent and stale and what happened was the, sh the the start date for that had pushed for um, several reasons. They couldn't, they didn't have any scripts ready in time. And during that push period, the uh, script for Lovecraft Country landed, came across the transom, and um, I I just was blown away. I mean, I read I quickly read the book, watched the pilot. I'd never seen anything like this before. And mm. for a cinematographer, it, it clearly was going to offer a lot of opportunity to do something really interesting. And the other big thing was that um, Showtime was not interested in changing their camera format. We'd been using the same one for that I'd used for years. Uh, it's just I wanted to try something a, a, a bigger uh, uh, scope and 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 uh, recording format. And 6K had come out. The Sony Venice had come out. Large format lenses with beautiful, beautiful shallow depth of field, which is so much more cinematic. I saw that as an opportunity to really put it to, through its paces on on Lovecraft Country, which was a, a show big enough to you know warrant it. And I think the proof is in the pudding because it's a great looking show. It really is. So what, what were you using on Ray Donovan with Showtime? Uh, we were still shooting 2K uh, Sony, uh, or pardon me, uh, Ari Alexa um, cook, 
Cook S4 lenses, Ingenue Optimos, which was basically the same package I'd been using. You know, it's the, the identical package to what we used on Game of Thrones for years. Uh, and I, I've been basically using it since 2010 when the, uh, when I got my first Alexa. And, um, you know, it's, it's nice to work with tools that you're super comfortable with and you, and, and, and you, you know, you don't have to think twice about how they're going to re- resolve or, or, or interpret what you're pointing them at. Um, but, uh, you know, like I say, it's it's important as an artist to not become complacent and to stretch yourself and to try something new. And you know, these 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 new Zeiss full frame lenses, which are T one point five, which is a very large aperture, which means the shallow the depth of field is extremely low, very cinematic, more more reminiscent of classic anamorphic glass. So you know, it's got that subconscious psychological feel when you're watching it that you're watching something big. Because, you know, I think I had this conversation years ago with Wes Craven when I was doing a, a movie with him, one of his last films. And um, his feeling was that we've all grown, you know, we, we, what we associate subconsciously with watching a big movie, a big movie event is is anamorphic with all the little flaws and optical um, uh peculiarities that those lenses have and they've got a lot more character that you know the focus falls off oddly compared to a a very precision surgically precise uh spherical lens and um he he felt like you know movie his movie he wanted all his movies shot that way so that when people sat down they felt like you know without being conscious of it we're watching a big movie if you will and and you know i and you know here we are there's like you know, so much more cinematic television being done. Uh, the truth is, I wish I could have shot Game of Thrones with those kind of format of lenses. I mean, I've still seen that show in the in the resolution and the and the equipment that we did do it projected on huge screens, and it looks pretty spectacular. But it would have looked that much better still if you were watching in that format had it been done on these newer large format sensors. And and just. Just to be clear, the, the the biggest advantage of them, I think, I don't, I don't think this necessarily the increased resolution, which is very much there, but it's the shallower depth of field you get from having those those great big lenses, and and you you know controlling depth of field is a is a wonderful uh, creative tool that you can use in telling your story, and I find it's especially handy uh, and and useful when you're doing a horror or, you know, some kind of a suspense or horror kind of situation where, you know, you want elements out of focus or you want, you, you want to be able to draw the viewer's eye to, uh, to where you want it to go, which didn't used to be an issue with television because of such a small screen, you didn't have to do that. But, um, if you're, you know, as TVs get bigger, um, there is a lot more information for the eye to scan and, and that it means more fun for the filmmakers to, you know, use your sleight of hand or whatever it is that you're, you're trying to accomplish. So what exactly were the lenses you were using? I know you probably mentioned it in there and I just want to kind of focus on that for just a second. We, we use these fantastic new uh, Zeiss uh, Supreme lenses, which are a lot cover, cover a very, you know, the full um, 35 millimeter uh, frame. Um, and, um, the nice thing about them, I got away from, I'd used them a lot in the 90s on shows like Millennium where we wanted a really cold, precise, uh, clinical look. Um, and But for years, I, I sort of made a shift to Cooks, which had a more roundness to them. I liked the way the mm-hmm. focus rolled in and rolled off, and they weren't, they weren't, they were sharp, but not too sharp. And now we've got these, these, Zeiss, and they've kind of done the same thing with with these new ones. Um, but in in addition to that, they've put them in a in a very lightweight for their size package and incredibly fast aperture, like I um, uh, mentioned. And that, together with the Sony Venice's potential twenty five hundred ISO, means that you can have you can have a huge stop with a huge amount of depth of field by amping up the ISO, or you can or you can bring your ISO down or dial in an ND filter and be working at T one point five, which is which is you know uh, really kind of gorgeous. Yeah, <laughs> quite awesome. Well, it's I mean, hard on the focus pullers, but it's but it sure looks great. It certainly does. I mean, did you have anything done to the lenses specifically for your production? We didn't do anything to them. Um, there's now a, 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 an option um, uh, that our rental house, Otto Nemens, 
has available where you can get in there and you can tune the edges, you can tune the fall off of the focus out to the edge. But these lenses were really new and that technology is also new. Um, but if I was going into a production now, again, with that stuff, I would definitely, uh, you know, we'd go in with their lens technician and say, okay, let's have it, you know, just let's soften around the edges here a little bit. Let's, let's, uh, you know, um, just play with, with where the, the, uh, sharpness is on it. So they're, they're, they're actually ultimately tunable, uh, albeit using some fairly sophisticated technology. But on that show, I just shot them straight. They were, they were new out of the box and they look great. Now I'm looking, I'm trying to find them here. Is it the Zeiss Supreme Prime and Supreme Prime Radiance lenses? Uh, we just, the Radiance weren't available yet. Those ones have lower contrast and have, you know, less efficient coatings. So they're more like a vintage lens. Okay. Uh, in, the, in that they, uh, they'll, they, they flare more and they've got, uh, you know, if you, they'll, they'll take a wash of light on them. And um, so they've got more anomalies built into them that we would expect to use if we were using a, like an old, some old vintage uh, cook pancros, for instance, which okay. I used to, I, I carried, I carried a set of those for, for 30 years and I, I picked them up. I think they were probably built in the sixties and they look pretty great, but, but they mechanically, they were a pain in the butt. They're always, you know, falling apart on you. These uh, now Zeiss has a choice between the Supreme prime radiance and the regular Supremes. Um, in a perfect world, I mean, if I was going into a show again, and there's one in the spring that I'm 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 uh, expecting to do, I think I'd probably carry a set of each, and um, you know, and mix and match depending on the needs of the scene. Yeah, I'm looking at them now, guys. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can check them out for yourself as well. Now, I mean, the the selection of the camera and selection of the lenses, obviously. You want something that looks beautiful, clearly. You want something that you want to work with, you're excited about. But it has to fit the show. It has to make sense for the show. So were there qualities about the Venice and the lenses that perfectly fit your depiction of the 1950s, which is when the show takes place? Yeah, well, I didn't want something that was, uh, you know, like super contrasty. And we didn't want to, you know, uh, lay, a, lay a look on top of the show. We wanted to, you know, we had beautiful, we had spectacularly attractive, talented actors and really great sets and great locations. And I just wanted something that wasn't going to impose itself too much on it because when you, mm. you know, you didn't, you don't, you kind of don't have to do that. And also um, the, the, the lower contrast of them and the way the focus rolled in and out suited my, uh, my aesthetic, which is to try and, you know, be as painterly as possible with the, with the light and, and, and naturalistic and non-theatrical. And I think all those elements together came to get, you know, you know, combined nicely to, uh, to, to give us a, um, a gorgeous show that looked right dramatically. Of course, a lot of that comes out of, you know, how you light it and the locations that you choose for a particular scene. Um, but they also, they also, you know, the viewer watching it isn't going to go, oh, you know, you're going to be pulled out of the story by by being distracted by, you know, like overly uh, obvious camera work, if you'll, if you will, because um, then we're not doing our job. And you know, the ultimate thing is for the viewer to just be completely engrossed in the story. If they're, if they're, you know, if they're looking at each other saying. Wow, that's a cool shot. You know, you, you, they're not caught up in the story at that point. So, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for a camera package that's the, and, 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 and all the elements that's going to make me as invisible as possible. You know, we're cameramen are supposed to be the, the invisible guy behind the curtain, not, mm. not, not in front of the camera. And, 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 you know, if you, if, 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 if you start, and, and it's, and, and it's a, it's a thing you see a lot of younger cinematographers do, which is, which is, try to get noticed. And if you're, you know, I think if you're doing that and we're all, we've all been guilty of it in our formative years, yeah. but um, you know, if you're, and, and that's great and people, and you get noticed for it, but it doesn't necessarily serve the gestalt of telling a story and engaging a viewer. That's an interesting thought. And I want to go down that road just for a second more is the idea that the cinematographer is sort of the man behind the curtain. Um, why is that important, do you think? What does that do to the actors, to the directors? What, is it, what does it allow to happen on set? Um, well, in my case, I mean, I try to make an environment, be as, a, a part of creating an environment for the actors to feel as comfortable as possible and to know that, 
you know, I'm, I'm there and I'm, and I'm going to take care of them and make sure they, 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 you know, look their best or at least as right as possible for the scene. Um, so, you know, you're, you're, you're not invisible. You don't, you know, there, I know, you know, I've heard of guys that just park themselves in the dit tent and they don't come out and they say, you know, they instruct everything over the radio and stuff. You can't, you can't do that because you have to be a present. The actor needs to know that, that you're there and looking after them. They have to, the same as they have to know the director is not going to, you know, let them go down a road that's, that's going to make them look foolish or what, or, or bad or in any way at all. But, you, you know, they, 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 need to know that they're they're being looked after photographically as well and and you know that's something i i think i've i've uh been really good at for a really long time yeah i think i think that's important and i'm curious do you ever have those conversations with the talent like at the beginning of a production do you have do you sit down with the you know the the feature talent the the stars and and talk to them about your particular philosophy and how you are going to support them visually yeah i'm not i'm not <laughs> I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm somewhat of a shy person. I'm not that forthcoming, you know, that way. But, um, I think if you're enough of a presence and ask the right questions and stuff, for instance, a, a really useful thing to ask them right off the bat before you even shoot any tests with them is, um, is, uh, a friend of mine suggested this to me. He says, ask them where they take their selfies from. Hmm. Because, they probably know where their best angle is because they've done it a thousand times. It's a if, great idea. If, you know, if it, um, and, and that, that's a really, that's a really good first start. If you ask them that and they ask you, well, why do you want to know? And you tell them because that's probably where your best angle is and that we're, we're, we're going to watch out for that. Then right away, they know that you're, you're looking out for them. That's smart. I like that. If, if they're more experienced, too, they can tell, you know, the more experienced they are. We're working with a fairly inexperienced younger cast on our show. But if you're working with the, I mean, the old pros knew where their light had to be. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, a lot of times we'll have, you know, you have an, an, an older one come in. They'll do some stunt casting or something like that, say, in, on Game of Thrones, for instance, Diana Rigg who, um, in her case, she didn't care where the light came from. She, she just wanted, you know, if, if it was good for her character, that was fine. But some of the, uh, you know, I've worked with some former TV and Hollywood divas who, you know, see that you're going to half light them with a big soft rag and they go, no, 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 no. Really? <laughs> um, I guess, I guess, and, and she didn't do this. She didn't say anything, but I, I did a scene with uh, a number of scenes with Anne Margaret who, mm was really getting on. If you look at, if you can find that scene on Ray Donovan, she looks like a million bucks. And the interesting thing with her was that she didn't look like Anne Margaret until I lit her exactly the way she'd been lit in every one of the movies that made her famous. And she was always lit the same way. She was never lit, uh, you know, with like soft side light or anything like that. It was, it was, it was, it was a hard light almost above the lens, right down the pipe. And as soon as we did that and we raised the camera up a little bit, because I did some tests with her, played around. Obviously, she was, she was, she's, you know, she was in her late seventies at that point. I think. Um, as we raised the camera a little bit and brought her key light around, all of a sudden, bam! That's Anne Margaret, and she looks like a million bucks, and she's almost eighty, and she's like amazing. Um, and that obviously worked because I, I finished that season. That episode aired, and I was. <laughs> I was over in Belfast prepping Game of Thrones and my phone rings. It was a number I didn't recognize. And, um, I picked it up and it was, it was Anne Margaret with an incredibly, her, her sexy husky voice saying, um, I just want to thank you for making me look so fantastic. I couldn't be happier. It just, it just, it, it was a great experience. So that is great. That was nice. Now, having said that, the showrunner at the time, um, <laughs> She didn't want her to look great, and she was mad at me for making her look so good. She wanted her to look older and more haggard, but I wasn't gonna. I, I wasn't gonna do that. That was. We got through that. Well, that's what I was gonna ask because you know the way that you light somebody doesn't necessarily uh, uh, the their character may not necessarily need the same lighting that they want. <laughs> you know, personally, I mean, how do you navigate right. that? Yeah, it's a tricky one. It 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 it. I mean, most of the time. Um, you, you you know you're primarily serving the story. It didn't hurt us at all that that Anne Margaret looked great. She was it, it, in fact the the showrunner's biggest complaint was that 
it had been written for the polo lounge, the scene, and the production designer had put us in his friend's minimalist modern Melrose Avenue restaurant. And, um, you know, she was mad at me because I didn't make it look like the polo lounge, but you know, you can't take a, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Um, and, and, and in the end, you know, once it aired and everything, everybody was happy, but you know, you're right. You run into that from time to time. Um, for instance, years ago, I had I was doing a series that Chris Carter was the showrunner on, and he wanted the wife to look as haggard and, and worn and careworn as, as possible. I mean, she was a very pretty woman, um, but he didn't want me taking any special paints. He didn't want me using any diffusion filter. He would look at he would actually look at the camera reports in the editing room and see if we'd use any diffusion on them. And, and if, if, if we had, you know, he I, I'd get a phone call from him chiding me mm-hmm. Um so the way I and but 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 then I had to be on set with this woman who was really unhappy with how she looked and really you know because she was starting she was like just starting to get a little over that hill. Uh, so what I did was uh, we were shooting that show on 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 very sharp Zeiss primes at the time, and I took out one of my my seventy. I would shoot all her close-ups on my old seventy-five millimeter cook pancro lens which was very soft and forgiving and not that sharp so when chris looked at the camera reports he'd just say see that there were no filters and we shot it clean with the 75 so that way megan the actress was happy and um chris was happy that's sneaky i like it that's sneaky (laughs) well at the same time i mean you know you when you have these personalities on set that really understand who they are what their brand is what their character is um you know, I can imagine that they can become a little bit forceful sometimes if they don't like the way that things are going. Yeah, they, it, it can be. Uh, um, years ago, I did a, a TV movie with Patty Duke, and mm. the director wanted it to, he was an old English fellow, and he wanted it to be very naturalistic, very soft, very non-theatrical, and what have you. And and the thing was, if you shot Patty Duke any way than she'd been photographed her whole life, you know, and certainly on the show— she was unrecognizable as Patty Duke. And only when you got, if you look at, if you go back and look at those, that old TV show that she made her a star um, or, or uh, 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 you know, the Helen Keller uh, story, the camera's always well above her eye line, way above her eye line. And she's always lit very much right from the front. And not until, I, until not until we, we, we photographed her that way, did she even look like Patty Duke. And only so then was wild. she happy. And, you know, so, so, you know, doing things like, like having a, a huge, beautiful, soft 12, 12 by 12, you know, coming in, lighting her three quarters front with a super soft, um, light. If the camera was anywhere, but directly in front of her face, sorry, um, it, she wasn't happy and it didn't, it didn't look like her. She knew right where the camera had to be and, and where the light had to be. And, um, you know, it was, it was, I think that's really about, you know, the the only time where there was, you know, for the first week or two until I managed to finesse the director into like being a little bit, you know, coming around and 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 uh, backing off on his on his more naturalistic way of shooting that he wanted to do um, that I that I've had an issue. Most of the time, I you know, I, I, I would say really wonderful relationships with the actors What uh, you know, it, it once that level of trust is there. Now on on Lovecraft you have a cast filled with you know relatively new people like there's this you don't have a cast of every single person is recognizable um you had mentioned even earlier i mean they're they're relatively inexperienced in the business they're just kind of getting one of their first big shows are you feeling like you are helping them define their look on screen up to a point but you have to keep in mind that everybody was in period costume and period hair and so on and so forth so um you know, not to say that they weren't incredibly photogenic. I mean, the, you know, we did have Michael Williams and, and Courtney B. Vance, who, yeah. who are old, old pros. And um, they came in and just saw, you know, saw stuff, maybe caught a glimpse of the monitor. They were they were they were wonderful. And um, and the younger cast were so photogenic. I mean, you 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 just absolutely couldn't go wrong with them i mean both both the uh you know and obviously quite a big african-american cast on the show um and actually just backing up a bit that was one of the reasons why um i wanted to give the venice a go with this because i think it does have more latitude more more uh contrast range than the other options and um you know we had we we had we had these 
to, you know, uh, white cast or Caucasian cast who are almost alabaster and blonde. And then, you know, we had some, some very dark complected people and, um, you know, I could have them easily in the same lighting setup on the same shot and everybody looked great. All right, let's take a quick break and talk about PostLab. Now, PostLab is a collaboration tool for Final Cut Pro and Premiere editors. Now, for those of you guys that edit, you know that collaboration can get a little bit bumpy sometimes. PostLab gets rid of all of that stress and makes it a seamless experience for collaboration in post-production. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. And they do it in a few different ways, okay? First of all, they give you access. So besides always saving your documents locally, PostLab syncs all the changes to your whole team wherever they are. You also have no more broken files. As we all know, two people working on the same file at the same time is an accident waiting to happen. But the second you start working on a document, PostLab locks it from all other team members. Plus, it shows you who's doing what. And lastly, Time Machine 2.0. Now, with PostLab, you can browse the history of each library. You can jump back and forth between versions and find that particular edit within a minute and open it exactly how you left it, down to the blinking playhead. Now, PostLab is always innovating, and one of their newest features is called PostLab Drive, which is shared storage in the cloud. Now, yeah, you've heard about shared cloud storage before, but this is different because PostLab Drive is the only cloud that lets you playback media on your timeline without first having to download everything. Talk about game-changing. This is what PostLab is all about. Now, here's the good news. You, by being a Go Creative Show listener, get an opportunity to try PostLab for three months for free. Three free months of PostLab. And all you have to do is go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash PostLab. Check it out for yourself. You will absolutely love how this changes the way you edit forever and for the better. PostLab, stress-free collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere at gocreativeshow.com forward slash PostLab. I want to talk a little bit more about the choice to have the Sony Venice, um, particularly like, were you testing any other camera lens packages before you jumped on the show? Or did you know right off the bat Venice was your choice? Uh, I knew I wanted to use it. I had just come back from NAB where uh, a friend of mine, John Joffin, had shot um, tests, uh, test material that they screened at NAB on a huge screen for both yeah. the Venice and the, and the Zeiss lenses. And, um, I, you know, I checked all that stuff out there and looked at, you know, talked to some, some, uh, colorists about the, you know, the color science in it and, um, uh, had, you know, immediately had the confidence that if you put X in the front, Y was going to come out the back, you know, yeah. you, you just, and, and that's all you really, that's all I, I want anymore as a cinematographer. I mean, once upon a time, I mean, I really, I understood photochemical science and emulsions and all that kind of thing. I started out as a still photographer developing my own film and going into the dark room. And I mean, I got that, but now with the digital cameras, I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm more interested in what I'm doing in front of the camera and, 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 making as, as, you know, as painterly and as natural and beautiful images as I can. And I just, I don't care what happens inside that black box as long as I get out what I see in my mind's eye at the other end. And, you know, I've had this exact conversation with Roger Deakins once or twice um, about that whole thing. And, and, you know, when, when, uh, you know, the more, the more geeky people start picking our brains about the science of digital uh, recording, um, our eyes glaze over because I'm I'm really I, I I don't really care that much to be honest. It's it just becomes a tool, and I know a good painter, you know, painters once upon a time had to learn how to make their own pigments, and 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 but but um, you know I've done this so long I don't have time for that anymore. I just I just I just I just want a tool that's going to be reliable. I know it's going to be very 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 consistent, and you know you get that with the Sony, you get it with the Alexa, um, and and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be using one or the other of those I expect for as long as I'm working. Yeah. I, I, I along with other cinematographers, including Roger, uh, also said, I'm never going digital. I'm never shooting digital. I'm never shooting digital. I'm never shooting digital. And then, and then we saw the Alexi and went, Oh, <laughs> so yes, I might shoot digital. 
<laughs> exactly. Well, you have to be open to new things, certainly. But once they get to a certain point, then you can ab- adopt them. I usually, I usually prefer someone else to uh, be the guinea pigs. But not to say I haven't been an early adopter once or twice, and I kind of was with this system because uh, you know I had a lot of faith in it. Now, I, I think one of one of the trends that I'm seeing in cinematography for TV shows and films is less reliance on creating a look in post or creating like a heavy-handed color treatment. I'm seeing a lot of shows becoming a little bit more naturalistic in their approach. And I noticed that particularly in your show. Now, obviously, you had the benefit of having a big budget and incredible sets. And, you know, you're, you were able to shoot wide and have an entire environment that looked amazing. Great talent, all of that. But are you starting to see that trend as well on your end, that people are, you know, kind of being a little bit more natural and letting the lighting be the look letting the cinematography be the look instead of having it be applied after. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really the case. And, and it comes down to, I think part of it is that the cameras are so good and they're so sensitive that it, it, it's letting all of us be a little bit more naturalistic. Um, um, that's certainly been my, my, my aesthetic for a long time now. I mean, I call it enhanced naturalism. You know, you're not, um, and when I see a show on TV where they have clearly imposed a look in post, nine times out of 10, if you were to take that look off, you'd have some very banal, shitty photography. Mm. So often I think it's a band aid that you lay on top after the fact to, to compensate for the fact that you didn't have time or the resources or very good looking. You might not, you know, might not have had very good looking sets or locations to photograph as well. Um, um, literally, I, I forget what it was, but I, I, I literally was channel flipping the other night and I saw a show and I went, whoa, you know, this has been very heavily manipulated after the fact. And I think probably because it was the, the, the original photography was so, average that it just wasn't going to send out in any way shape or form without having a, a look imposed upon it um, whether it, and and it was kind of retro too i mean they, they were crushing the blacks and kind of doing the stuff that um uh the, the, you know and desaturating the stuff that we were doing you know i was doing a millennium back in 1997 yeah um and you know and you know my feeling with that stuff is uh, been there done that let's let's get on and 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 these cameras record so nicely in the, in the, you know, the gradation of tones and so forth is so good now that you can actually with, with a little bit of atmosphere, you can, you can actually make something look like a, a, a great a Dutch master oil painting from the golden age of, you know, in the 1600s or whatever. And in fact, I'm never happier than when I have dailies that every frame looks like it could have been painted 400 years ago. Yeah. By a a good painter. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Not a bad painter. Something really shitty could be 400 years ago, too. (laughs) That's true. And there are plenty. Let's talk about your. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's look at those. I want to talk about your approach to lighting, your lighting philosophy for Lovecraft Country. Um, Takes place in the 1950s. Um, You're using these really sharp, brand new lenses from Zeiss. You've got the Sony Venice. You've got all the information you need coming into the camera. so how are you lighting it to reflect this time period? I, I'm not I'm not trying to make it look like the first thing I didn't want to do was light in a way that would look like it was actually shot in the 50s, mm-hmm. because that's a very hard that's a lot of very hard light with low, you know, uh, very insensitive film stocks. Um, so why not just, you know, let 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 the you know, we had superb production design incredible costumes great hair and makeup um you, good locations we had the support of a spectacularly good visual effects crew mm-hmm. who i could rely on to see you know when they said that don't worry about that we're going to put the l in the background we're going to you know we can mitigate that we can take that light out of the shot it's it's going to make it look better if you if you have it there so really when you've got something beautiful to photograph all you have to do is photograph it beautifully. And mm-hmm. as, and, and in my case, you know, my approach is to be as natural as possible. And I, I keep going back to, um, uh, Freddie Young's quote after, you know, he shot, he got three Oscars for Ryan's daughter, Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia. And after he got his third one, somebody supposedly asked him, 
Mr. Young, what's the secret to you, you make such beautiful pictures? What, what's your secret? And he said, well, there's no secret. The trick is to only take pictures of beautiful things. <laughs> I love that. I haven't heard that, but I love that. So, yes, that's true. You've got beautiful things in front of the camera. But can you give us a little bit of insight into maybe the techniques? What what lights are you rolling with on average? Are you are you kind of like a big, soft key kind of guy or are you a more narrow, harder lights kind of guy? What makes sense for this show? Um, it depends on the location, you know, I mean, and I'll, I'll use everything. And I think, I think the most pleasing photograph or, you know, images usually have a combination of all of the above. Um, and a lot of it just comes down to taste and, and where, you know, uh, this, you know, a combination of both hard and soft, um, in terms of the fixtures I use, I still really like great big lens, uh, either, either HMI or tungsten fixtures. Um, because the, the quality of, the, of light that they throw is, is not like any LED, anything that any LED can use. Having said that, I also used a lot of the newest Steratubes, which are remote controlled battery is self-contained right in them. You can stick them, you can just stick them up in places you could never have a light before to enhance, you know, I was using them a lot in the hallways and one of the sets to enhance the candlesticks that were sticking out of the walls. You couldn't see them. You never knew there was another light there, but the, but it was emitting a more pleasing light on faces as they walked by them or landed near them than you would get otherwise. And when you're done with it there, you could pull it off that and clip it up somewhere else. So, you know, that that's the latest technology in terms of lighting. We're using a lot of airy sky panels, uh, again, which are incredibly useful because, you know, you've, you've got that full spectrum control. But still... My favorite light that I lit 90% of the close-ups on both Game of Thrones and Ray Donovan and Westworld with is is a dado. It's called a dado parabeam or octod. We just call it an octodome. It's a it's a it's a three five or seven foot wide umbrella type looking light, but it has a very narrow footprint, so it doesn't you know it doesn't stick out too far. But it's a broad source with an with an egg crate in it. Um, you, or, or often through a, an extra rag. And what I love about that is that it is a tungsten light. It's only a thousand watts, but try as I might, I have never been able to get a close up look or skin tone, be it, be it black or white, looking as nice using any kind of an LED source regardless how many layers of diffusion you're going through or how you're how you're uh, manipulating that light i've never been able to get a close up to look as good using an led source as i can with a tungsten uh, uh element burning there's just there's there's no substitute for the full spectrum image of of a, of a, of a tungsten filament burning I on, on skin or really on, on anything but on skin for sure uh, on anything, but that's a fi- you know that's a fixture. And the thing I love about it is that it's very lightweight. You can put it on a lightweight stand. You know you have to you know you don't need three guys to move it. It's so light even I can move it. Even if you want to slide it around a little bit, um, it, you know it comes in, it comes out. So you know I'll bring I'll bring something like that in and and light our close ups with that whenever I you know I, I, have, I have the elbow room for it. What was that light again? I'm going to try to find it so I can put it in the show it's cool. notes. It's made it's made by Dato. Um, Octodome para. I don't know what oh, their official hold name on, is. Let's but see. Something popped up when I was searching. Dado light octodome. Look at this. Here it is. Oh yeah, yeah. I see it right here. All right. I'll put a link to it for you guys. So this is kind of your preferred close-up light. I love it. Mm. I mean, the, the the electrics grumble a bit about it because it comes in a case and you have to put all the rods. You know, it's a little bit yeah. of a pain to put together and take apart. But, you know, it's not like an umbrella that pops up immediately. And they're a little bit delicate. You have to change the reflectors out, you know, if the guys aren't careful and they close it too soon, the bulb will burn it. But, um, you know, I've, I've had mine now for 10 years, and, and I, just, I just love that thing. And like I say, I was introduced to it originally on Game of Thrones where we had, you know, basically one for each set. And I, I just fell in love with it immediately because it just produced such lovely results. And if you watch Game of Thrones from certainly from about season three on, um, I bet, you know, of the, of the numerous cinematographers who did episodes on that, we all, we all, uh, fell back on that fixture. And, um, 
like I say, I'm just I'm just prepping a movie now and and introducing my crew to it here as well. Thing is, um, rental companies, the lighting rental companies tend not to like that kind of stuff because they're a little bit delicate and they need a lot of maintenance. You have to be careful with them. You can't like beat the crap out of them like you can with you know the old studio stuff. But um, I I haven't found anything that makes nicer close-ups than that light. Now, let's take a quick break and talk about MZ. Now, MZ is all about educating filmmakers and creatives. That is what it's all about. And perfect for Go Creative Show. I mean, that's who we are here at Go Creative Show. Now, they they have, first of all, a library of hundreds and hundreds of hours of video-based, high-quality filmmaking education covering all sorts of topics like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And of course, education is only as good as the educator. And the great news about MZ is that they have a roster of incredible educators, people that you know and love that have work that you admire. Talking about Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, the Ari Academy is there. In fact, we had Philip Bloom on talking about his, um, his uh, MZ uh, course, Filmmaking for Photographers. We had him on talking about that whole thing just a, a few months back. Now, perfect example One of their educators is Tom Cross. Now, he's an editor, Tom Cross, A-C-E. His course is called The Art and Technique of Film Editing. Now, listen, Tom Cross edited Whiplash. He edited La La Land. So we're talking about an award-winning, Oscar-winning editor, Tom Cross. Now, he's teaching one of the courses over at MZ. Like, that's the caliber of trainers that you have at MZ. It's absolutely incredible. Now, yes, you can buy individual courses, and that's great. But if you become an MZ Pro member, you have access to a library of hundreds of hours of this amazing stuff. So that is what I'm suggesting you do. That's what I am, an MZ Pro member, and I suggest you do the same thing. Now, you can learn all about MZ at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. Check it out for yourself. You're going to absolutely love the quality of courses, the visual aesthetic to it, of course, because we're all filmmakers here. And also just the education itself. It's just so good. It's perfect for our minds, for the creative mind. It's perfect for us. Check it out for yourself. GoCreativeShow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. I want to talk about episode four of Lovecraft Country. This has got to be one of the most fun episodes of anything you've shot. I mean, talk about... You're underwater. There's fire. There's dra- I mean, it's it's craziness. I mean, and yeah. deeply. I mean, at least to me, it had to have been inspired by Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's just too much in there to not be inspired by it. So, for, could, could just to bring everybody Ra- up to Raiders speed, of the Lost Ark and, and Goonies. Goonies, exactly. Uh, yeah, big, you know, Goonies, just to bring everybody time. up to speed. Uh, can you can you just sort of get everybody up to speed for those that may have not seen this particular episode? Uh, what is it about episode four that made it so fun and so exciting for you? Uh, well, you know, the big, the, you know, we, we've got the uh, we've got the element of magic, which lets you get away with a lot of stuff. That you know, there's there's magic spells and so on and so forth. Um, um, you know, grounded in reality, and that particular episode. I mean, the, the, the part of the goal of it was to, for the first time, almost ever. Um, make our Raiders of the Lost Ark, have Raiders of the Lost Ark type, Indiana Jones type heroes, the heroes like you have, you know, the kids in, in, in Goonies doing adventure stuff, but it's African-Americans doing it, mm. which is unique. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's changing and everything, but you know, it's part of the, 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 the underlying theme of that series, which is to deliver a, a lesson about the history of, racism and bigotry in America um, wrapped up in this crazy sci-fi fantasy, uh, you know, horror monster uh, venue that we've got, Um, you know, so that kind of folded into it nicely, but, you know, having, having gotten past that point, yeah, then we were into building some really spectacular sets. The biggest one, certainly that I've, that I've worked on since game of Thrones, Um, our heroes go to Boston to try and get some answers. They um, find their way into a secret catacomb, um, choose, have to choose which tunnel to go down. I mean, it's just like, somebody's going to make a good video game out of this at some point, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
they are faced with chasms, with hidden booby traps and pendulums. Um, they get into a, a series of tunnels that are affected by the rising tide. Um, they are sloshing through water through much of it. Then they have to swim through water. We've got underwater work. We built a, a gigantic um, uh, set with uh, with sloping floors so that we could slowly, you know, raise and lower the water and change the depth of it and so forth as the tide is supposedly rising. Yeah. They get through this and then they go through a trap, a secret trap door, very Goonies-ish, and find themselves in a sunken but somehow airtight, watertight uh, pirate ship with a bunch of mummified Arawak Indians in it. They have to get a, a secret scroll, get out of it, get back out. There's fire. There's explosions. The water. We we had a massive, massive dump tank and destroy, completely destroyed the set. It was very spectacular. Then they get back and they find this elevator that magically takes them back into their house in Chicago. And so we had to have a we had a, 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 a the elevator on a hydraulic rig that would raise and lower in and out of the water. Um, you know, shooting in water is is really difficult. Uh, and, uh, you know, logistically it was, it was a really tough shoot. And I, I, I gotta give, you know, take my hat off to my grip crew who, who did an amazing job. And they, they actually, for all the, for all the work working on the water, they came up with a, um, they cut a boogie board and had a half and made a little catamaran. And we put the airy Maxima stabilized head on it, put the camera on that. And then the dolly grip could, could push it around through the water, no matter how, uh, rough the water got the camera stayed perfectly steady because we didn't wow. we didn't want to go we didn't want to get into too much of a handheld kind of ropey feel um because we just felt like we were a bigger classier show than that but it was the only way to get into these tunnels and the operator re- operated it remotely and that thing worked like like just great do you have any pictures of that uh i have one picture of it i think oh if you being can driven share by, that that would be Excellent. I'll, I'll I'll send that to you afterwards. Yeah, that'd be so cool to see. So, uh, so you just took a regular old boogie board, sliced that in half, and that's what you mounted the head onto. Did I hear that right? Yeah, the Airy Maxima, which is a lightweight head. It's like a Ronin. Um, you know, you can yeah. conceivably you know carry it. Um, I'd been introduced to it on on Game of Thrones when I had a walk and talk with Jon Snow down a flight of stairs that had been built by the crusaders that just on this spanish cliffside and um there's no way we could have done it with a steady cam the guy would have broken his ankle because none of the steps were even so we put the camera on this on the maxima a grip on either side of it walked down the stairs watching where they were going while the camera pointed back on the two shot that we were shooting the operator operated it remotely from the foot of the stairs and it just it just it's 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 a flawless beautiful walking two shot that we couldn't have gotten any other way and then we also had to bring it out on the beach we had we had walk and talks on this huge windswept beach with uh with with uh Daenerys and her and her cohort and it was so windy a steady you know the steady cam was like healing over sideways so instead we brought the maxima out you can mount it on a car it's very lightweight it doesn't you know it doesn't have it doesn't have to have technicians come with it like scorpio heads and you know some of the bigger serious stabilized heads do it's it's something you can just have in your kit so it's a very useful tool i'm not familiar with it but i'm looking at pictures of it right now and yeah i mean it's just kind of the i guess the ari equivalent to like you said the ronin or something like that um right but it it looks a little bit more robust in there than than what it's heavier yeah yeah it's 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 heavier and more heavy duty um but, but, you know, I used it, uh, I shot the uh, pilot for Batwoman last year, and we didn't want to, you know, in cases where, you know, we didn't we didn't want to have, we didn't want to be steady cam. We wanted to be as, feel as much like a feature as we could. We wanted and to be as locked off as we could. And um, by taking a, a black arm uh, vibration mount, which you can, you know, put on any number of mounts onto, uh, attach that to the dolly, put the Maxima on that. You could then use the dolly to do a walk and talk down a rough city sidewalk without having to take the time to lay track or dance floor. Um, lay, laying dance, watching guys lay dance floor, which, you know, I, I think a lot of them love just drives me around the band. They're just like, I just, I don't want to wait for that. A lot of the time it's just, it's just, <laughs> if I can possibly help it. And this is a way to get around it sometimes. When you're going into episode four, did you know right from the script that this was going to be 
inspired by, like you said, Goonies, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that it, that it kind of had that look to it? Or was that something that you developed along the way? I knew that that was the inspiration for the script, definitely. I mean, the, the writers made no bones about that, 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 that this, is, this is we're making our, our, our African-American Raiders Goonies <sighs> episode. Um, and uh, I, I think the only concession to that I made was that I, I kind of leaned into a little more than I normally would the lighting motif of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think, was it uh, Jeffrey Unsworth? I can't remember who shot those. I think it was Unsworth, British DP. Um, anyway, you know, with the, where, where the motif and it's reflected in all the posters was, you know, uh, with the orange and blue combination of lighting that you saw a lot in movies during that era. Yeah, so. Yeah. I, you know, I, I amped up the orange from the firelight and the, and the torches and the, and the, and the, um, and the lanterns a little bit more. And, you know, whereas, you know, more, you know, in, in contemporary time, I think most of us are, are backing off from that electric blue moonlight kind of thing. I just, I just, I, I, I eased into a little bit more blue into it. You'll see it in the, in the color scheme and the, um, in the lighting in there. It's a, it's a bit more, a tiny bit more strident. But I just subconsciously wanted to kind of like put that that thought and feeling in everybody's heads that, you know, just just tie us visually together that way. But apart from that, I, I didn't really uh, I, I didn't do too much, um, you know, in terms of, you know, tipping my hat to those movies. Yeah. And I think a lot of that tipping the hat is in the wardrobe and the locations and all of that stuff. I mean, they're just so reminiscent of classic scenes from the films. Right. And the music, too. Yes, I, exactly. You know, Exactly. Good yeah. point. I want to talk about the techniques that you used for the underwater parts of episode four. Um, we don't get a lot of opportunities to talk about that with DPs because a lot of DPs don't really do it. So uh, you just had this opportunity in episode four of um, Lovecraft Country, and I'd love to hear about how you approached it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't actually obviously do the underwater operating myself. I've got operators. We brought uh, guys in who do that all the time. Sure. Having said that, uh, once upon a time, I used to because back before the days of video assist, I'd get an underwater operator. They'd set, you'd tell them, describe to them exactly what you wanted. They'd go down with the underwater housing. They'd shoot it. They'd say, did you get this? Did it was like this? Did you get this? And they'd go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you get your dailies back the next day, and it didn't look anything like that. So I got so frustrated. I went and got my diving ticket. I learned how to do it myself. No And I way. just started doing it myself. And then I knew if I had it or not. But that was a long time ago. You know, it's a whole different ballgame now, and I've got also got a lot more um, – you know, plates to keep spinning when you're on a production this big. And, and obviously this set had a had a massive soft light built above it because, there, you know, we couldn't be, you know, doing a lot of specific lighting. So our overall sort of basic fill level came from this very, very soft, slightly blue soft light. I had them keep the, the tops of the tunnel open, knowing that if we did catch them, uh, this effects would would fill it in because it, it would have been if if they're absolutely totally enclosed tunnels it, it would have been um we'd have been in there forever and it wouldn't have looked very good and interestingly one of the things we encountered that you normally don't run into um we had the, you know the latest underwater housing for the full-on venice camera um but the problem is to for the actor's comfort obviously the water had to be heated up they had it pretty warm in there because they were going to be in it all day. And the crew, were, we were going to be in there. I mean, I was, I was in there, too, but I didn't, um, you know, I wasn't sort of stuck there for, for 12 hours like a lot of them were. So the water was very warm. And the result was that the camera in that underwater housing overheated. And uh, mm. my my first assistant, Steve Early, had the genius idea of he he quickly got the drivers to go and get us some dry ice. We opened the housing up, packed the bag with dry ice, closed it up, and that way the camera wouldn't overheat. Because underwater housings are made to use in the ocean where it's never an issue because sure. it's cool. It's not, it's not you know, 98 degrees um, or 102 degrees or whatever whatever they had it at. And um, that solved the problem, which was, you know, it's I, I think that's typical sort of film crew thinking, you know, you know, solving, you know, finding solutions to problems in a hurry. And, and yeah. um, you know, so... Anyway, just backing up to actually shooting under the water, I didn't have any underwater lights per se. We had we had a what looked like a period flashlight that we had um, waterproofed and put a waterproof uh, LED flashlight into that would last a long time. So, yeah, I mean, totally unrealistic, but 
so so is the so is the rest of the story if you <laughs> exactly. look at it that way. Um, so you know, I, I don't think anybody. I don't think that bumped for anybody. Um, <laughs> when and, you're taking then, an elevator from a supernatural world to your home, no one's going to worry about the flashlight. <laughs> not 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 too much. Yeah. No, and the light stayed on in the elevator too. That was very handy. <laughs> so for so basically nothing underwater except for that flashlight. Large soft source up top. What about in situations where there's close-ups or you're just a little bit closer and you need to, I mean, there must've been points where you needed to just get a little bit of fill onto someone, or did you just embrace the darkness? We kind of went with it. And, um, we also had, you know, on, on the, on the close-ups when they're like uh, above the water, I had, um, and you'll see it in the photo I, I send you of the, uh, floating rig, uh, a little light called the Lytra, L-I-T-R-A. Mm. And the, the unit itself is very tiny. It's rechargeable. Uh, you put a, you can put a little softbox on it. Um, it's something I used a lot on that show under the camera, uh, just very, very subtly to open the eyes up. And, and, and again, that's a little tool. If, a, if an experienced actor sees a little light under the camera, they're immediately going to know that they're going to look okay. Mm-hmm. And so psychologically, even if you, even, if, even if it's not emitting very much light at all, it's a good way to tell an actor. Um, yeah, we're looking after you. We're going to see your eyes and stuff. But the beauty of, of the Lytra is that um, there's an app. You can control it on your phone. So, for instance, if you're doing a push in on a, on a, on a face, you know, the, with the old system, the light would get too bright by the time you were right into their face with the camera. Sure. And it wouldn't be consistent. Um, you can dim and you can you can dim them uh, by by a Bluetooth on a dimmer on your phone. So I can just stand by the camera and watch as it gets closer and, and dial it down on the phone. It's the most wonderful tool. I haven't heard too many people uh, talking about it, but I carry two of them all the time and, and uh, it's a, it's a great thing. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not ashamed to give them a plug because and, and you like the color temperature product. out of this one. Cause there's a lot of competition in this space. This is a consumer light. I mean, first of all, I love it when people, I love it when big films and shows use these little consumer products that, any of us can just buy and use on our own shoots. It's so exciting. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes, but you were happy with the color temperature that it put out. It's a little bit, it's a little bit limited, but that's easy to, uh, you know, if you want to warm it up, I think uh, having said that, I think it goes from, I want to say around 2000 Kelvin to around 5,600 or 6,000 maybe. Mm. So, I mean, that's a pretty good range for, for day-to-day use. And then, and then, you know, again, if you want to, you know, put a little piece of CTO or something on that, on that little softbox, that's, that's very easy to do. If you, if you want to work it a little warmer for candlelight or what have you. Yeah. And I can see right here, there's little barn doors. There's a little filter set. Oh, how cute. (laughs) Yeah. Don't, don't, don't waste your money on the barn doors or the filters. You (laughs) you won't use them, but that soft, that little, that little mini softbox is very handy. I'm looking at that right here. I mean, we're talking about a kit that's like under, if you just get the regular Lytra Pro, it's 200 bucks. Then a little soft box. Very cool. Yeah. Oh, I love that yeah. stuff. Now, now you've it's derailed fantastic. me. Now I love, the, I love gear like this. I, I, it's just, it's fun. It's like not super expensive. It's just fun little things like that. I love it. All right. So back to, and we just have a couple minutes left, but just, just to kind of round out our conversation about the uh, underwater filmmaking. Is there any... Like, what do you think is probably the biggest challenge of shooting underwater or maybe something that people don't understand when they jump into this? Um, You know, we had a similar conversation a a few episodes ago about shooting day for night. And the conversation was kind of about how you have a perception of what day for night is until you do it. And then you realize that it isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be. Is there something similar to that with underwater uh, cinematography? Um, not so much. I mean, I mean, it, it's really, um, uh, uh, communication and, mm-hmm. you know, just it, it, the, the frustrations of her, just the time it takes, you've got, you know, like reloading the camera has to come out, has to get dry. Cards have to go in and stuff, you know, lo- logistically stuff, everything just takes a little longer. Um, but I mean, I've done a lot of underwater work with one show or another and, um, that that's really, you just have, you just have to allow more more time for it. And, and the other big one that everybody forgets, and we ran into this on game of Thrones for the last shot in, in that loot train attack, when Jamie sinks into the river, um, they wanted to build this whole under underwater world that he sunk into with like burnt wagons and bodies and stuff. And with a Sandy bottom and so forth. And I told them 8 million times that as soon as you got anybody in there, 
it was all, it was just going to be, no matter how strong the filters were, it was just going to, you weren't going to be able to see two feet in front of the camera. And also, uh, actors have to be able to clear their, their, their sinuses as they sink. And you can't just shoot something like that. Um, they went ahead with it anyway, and they threw away a whole day's work, probably a quarter of a million dollars worth of production. Um, and I told them, wow. It was a, it was a, that day was a complete write off other than one shot looking up of a fireball going overhead and a body falling in. That's the only bit they used. And in the end, they did exactly what I told them they should do, which is, um, film him dry for wet, which is how I did a last, a last shot in the season, I think six finale of Ray Donovan when he jumps into the East River. Um, doing it for real, a close up on an actor, their faces get all bulgy. Um, it's, you're, you're way better off doing it dry for wet with smoke and, and, and ripply light through the smoke and, and with a little bit of help from VisFX to put particulate in the water. Um, it's, it's always much more successful and <laughs> needless to say, the actors are a lot happier that way too. I've never heard of that term dry for wet. And I know the exact scene you're talking about with Ray Donovan when he, when he jumps in the river. So are, are you simply just saying that you are just shooting him and everything is visual effects? Uh, very little visual effects. The truth is, and that was something that came together at the last minute because a second unit had gone out and filmed Liev Schreiber underwater and they, the, the lighting was like they put a, a tube, like a flora, underwater fluorescent tube right under his face. Um, his eyes weren't focused. It, you know, he's got short hair anyway, so it doesn't move around in the water. Um, and sure. I showed it to, I, and, and it was our last day of shooting in, in LA before we moved to New York to do the New York sequences. I showed that picture to Liev, who was getting ready to get on a plane and go home. And I said, we got to do, we can't, we can't let this go. Um, but I know what we can do. So we built a, a black box. Um, I didn't have time to get the, uh, the, you know, there's some great old school rock and roll lights that, that make it look like the way, exactly the way light looks when it's shining down through the ocean or water. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have time to get any of those. So I used what I'd done on low budget shows in the past, which is get big, huge sheets of gel and bounce a light off them and ripple the gel, which gives you that dancing water effect that when you're underwater, mm. put a whole pile of smoke in, uh, over crank the camera. Um, and got a close up that absolute that needed almost no help at all to look like it was actually underwater. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. That's a discussion in and of itself, but we've completely run out of time. I so enjoy talking to you. You're you really too. you're really good at explaining the techniques um, of how to do these things. It's it's hard to do that to explain these techniques, especially on shows that you, you shot months ago. You do a really good job of explaining it to the audience, and I know they love it. And um, Thank you so much for being back on Lovecraft Country. Uh, it's on HBO right now, so you guys can check it out for yourself. Um, I'd love to get that photo, Robert, so we can share that with our audience of the uh, underground rig. And really, if you have any photos from the show that you think would be relevant to our discussion, please send them along because that those are always really, really helpful. But the show is beautiful. It's amazing. Um, you know, I expect nothing less from Robert McLaughlin, ASC, CSC. Uh, and thank you just Very so kind. much for, for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I'd love to come in, you know, day for night, there's something to talk about sometime because um, that's a whole, that's, that's an interesting world. Um, and if you, if, if anybody's watching episode two, there's a great sequence that's supposed to take place at dusk. They were going to shoot, they wanted to shoot it at night, but it's, it would have looked like night in the woods would not have looked very good. It would have been too full uh, all nighters in the Georgia woods in the, in, in July, it would have been miserable. Um, we shot all that during uh, broad daylight mm. using a lot of smoke and to, to, to mitigate the sun. And you watch that. Tell me it's not, wasn't actually shot at magic hour. Yeah. I, it I looks know. The, great. I know the exact scene you're talking about. And it really is fantastic. So Robert, thank you so much. What is next for you? What's your next project? I'm actually sitting in a production office in Toronto, prepping a, a uh, little horror film uh, with a with a aimed at uh, you know an adolescent kid audience. Um, uh, we start shooting in a week and a half, and uh, yeah, working in the in the in the in the realm of uh, in the era of COVID is very interesting. Mm. Yeah, that- but um, yeah, I'm I'm excited about. It. I haven't actually done a haven't actually done a feature in a few years now, and uh, it's nice to do something big enough to get your teeth into. I love that. Good for you. That sounds great. I'm glad you're working. I'm glad the industry is creeping back. And um, 
It just, it looks like better days are ahead, certainly. Amen. All right, I want to thank Robert McLaughlin for coming on the show and, of course, talking about his work on Lovecraft Country and Ray Donovan and all sorts of stuff, Millennium, all sorts of stuff. Uh, I love having Robert on the show because he does such a great job of explaining things. Like, that's that's just, it's hard to do. And he does a really good job of it. So if you love the show, let us know. Let Robert know. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. And you can do that at gocreativeshow.com because it will take you to all of the various places where we post stuff. So uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can follow us there as well. Oh, by the way, we are doing these extra little episodes every once in a while, like these, these sneaky little episodes that we only put on YouTube. In fact, our last one is all about how um, how they did uh, the remote filmmaking for the Emmys with Jason LaCorey. So if you don't follow us on YouTube, you should be following us there because we're going to sneak in these little extra episodes for those YouTube followers. Just a little surprise for you guys. So, um, of course, we want to thank you for supporting the show. And thank you all for listening and sharing and keeping the show alive for, for so long. We're almost into our eighth year. I can't believe it. But I wouldn't have it any other way because I love doing this show and I really love our audience out there at the Go Creative Show world. So thank you so much for supporting us. I also want to thank our sponsors, MZ, Education for Creatives, and PostLab, Stress-Free Collaboration, and Final Cut Pro and Premiere. And of course, the team behind the scenes, Connor Crosby, our producer, you can find him at ignitionvisuals.com and Matt Russell from gainstructure.com. His whole team mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. So thank you to Matt and all those guys out there. All right, that's it for us, but we're going to see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.